Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. Sorry, I was a little late jumping over there. I'm trying to get uh, the old Twitter tweet out about um, the live stream here. Uh, for those watching live on YouTube, I appreciate you doing so. Uh, go ahead and add any questions you may have, a Q&A in the comments. As long as I'm here, I'll put drop Q&A here for the comments. And then if you're listening on the podcast, you know, get, get up on the YouTube, my friends. Uh, unexpected points going through the roof there. Um, actually, it's not going through the roof, but we're up, we're up over 500 subscribers. We're getting pretty good numbers as far as the viewers on there. And pretty comparable to what I was getting at PFF when I was feeding into a funnel that was couple hundred thousand people subscribe to the pff so it, it really lets you know like you can't just get people to watch your videos by being part of a bigger subscription stream there have to actually be some attachment to to what you're doing there okay so let's figure out what's going on with ota news and notes i was blessed here with a friday afternoon news drop for DeAndre Hopkins being released. So um, are, are we, okay, let's, let's figure out guys, are we crunching the numbers and have we decided that the fact that the Cardinals end up paying DeAndre Hopkins, I think it was $58 million in straight cash, homie. Um, they paid him that as a new contract that he got after the trade from the Texans. Did Bill O'Brien win the trade now? <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. Of course he did win the trade. But he got a second-round pick and, you know, the the corpse of David Johnson. Maybe not looking quite as bad for the fact that Hopkins made a ton of money on this deal. He had the suspension also as part of it, which they didn't have to pay for. Um, but he still got that through there. It looks like there's about... 20 million, 19.5 million that comes off of the books for the Cardinals. So there's no guaranteed money left in his deal. So there's like zero in like a loss of guaranteed money here. Uh, they're not cutting any additional checks to DeAndre Hopkins here. The Cardinals are not. Uh, but they just had dead money as part of this deal. Uh, let me look up here to figure out exactly how much dead money was left on this. I apologize. I couldn't do the research in advance since the news just dropped here. Make sure when you're getting your news, always go to over the cap, uh, not those other guys. So, yeah, he was due $19.45 million in salary, but there still was a remaining $21 million and change in prorated bonus money because of the contract that he got there. And then I think he also got, I think it was also restructured at a point in time or extended, which is like an extension slash restructure at a point in time here. So 21 million, $21.1 million in dead money. It sounds like they're taking this all right now. They're taking it all uh, in 2023 as part of this rebuild year, as opposed to spreading it out over a couple of years. I'm not sure the logic of that or not. I mean, you can always push forward. Like if you have, if you, if you, if you, if you give yourself extra cap room this year and you spread this out over two years, you can roll that cap room forward. So 
I'm a little bit surprised they're not doing a June 1st on this. I know you can only do a certain number of June 1st. I think it's three, I want to say. Um, so maybe that they already had plans for that. But it sounds like they're taking all of this dead cap this year. And when we think about this number here, the $21.1 million that, they're ta- that they're taking in dead cap, biggest dead cap numbers in history, uh, forget about quarterbacks because we got, you know, 40 million for Ryan and Rogers, 34 million for Wentz, 26 for Russ Wilson. So Julio Jones, $23.25 million was the next closest in terms of dead money. Um, it's two. Okay. Thank you for that. Robert Ziegler. Yeah, I, th- I thought I couldn't remember if it was, I said one or three, so I'll split the difference. Um, yeah, so this is not the most dead money ever for a non-quarterback. Julio Jones looks like is the most at 23.25. Then Brandon Cooks, 21.8, is slightly higher. And Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown, that was one. I remember how I was more wrong maybe about Antonio Brown's release than almost anything that I've thought of. Because I thought there was no chance in hell that they were going to... Uh, just release Antonio Brown. This is before we knew like the degree of insanity for for Antonio Brown. At this point, he had just um didn't show up basically to play. What was the last? I think it was a winner when you're in last game of the regular season. Um, so I, I didn't think there was any way they were just gonna like basically lose his entire dead money you know, for that year and trade him, but he was, so he's 21.1 million. So that's it. So it's just cooks Brown and Julio Jones is the three guys who are more than Deandre Hopkins as part of this deal. Hopkins was one of the worst talking points for people who don't really understand how salary cap works and what you're like, you're trading for contracts or not trading for players. Hopkins was almost a picture-perfect example of a player who, productive, entering his age 31 season, you know, not as productive as he had been in the past. I mentioned uh, the the suspension that he had, so that's, you know, that, that colors things a bit as far as his production. Only played nine games last year, 10 games the year before, so you have that. Didn't play a whole lot. Age 31 season is going to be a little tough. Uh, believe it or not, the I don't know if I would call Hopkins a bigger body receiver, but he's certainly not a slot receiver. The the bigger body guys, and maybe we saw this with to Julio with Julio Jones to a degree, um, don't age as well in the NFL as slot receivers or tight ends who also operate in the short area in the zone. Those guys last longer. They have longer horizons here. Hopkins, you know, 6'1", 215, more of a contested catch sort of guy. Um, well, obviously a contested catch sort of guy, but he was more of a downfield outside receiver, not a not an inside guy. Probably wasn't going to last as long. Obviously had a massive 2020 season, so that's what we're looking back to. And he was good as gold before that, only missing two games, a total of two games from, 2020, from 2013 to 2020. So that's eight seasons. He only missed two games during that entire stretch. Uh, posting a thousand yards in six out of those seasons, uh, double digit touchdowns in three of those seasons. So, you know, one of the more productive players, he was also highly decorated, like low key, really highly decorated. 
or maybe it's high, maybe Heike, maybe everyone recognizes this, but I think this is part of the reputational thing with people misunderstanding his value in this offseason is that three straight first team all pros. That's pretty tough to do. So 2017 through 2019, first team all pro each of those seasons, 2015, second team all pro, 2020, second team all pro, but then fell off the last couple of years. So again, you're training for for contracts, not for players. A lot of people were thinking that it was obvious that he was on the trade block at the very least this season, but with 14.5 million due this year, an additional 15 million due next year, it doesn't seem extreme, but paying, you know, 17 and change for DeAndre Hopkins age 31 and 32 seasons, that type of contract, even if it had no guarantees, you know, it's just not worth anything in the NFL. He could have a great year this year. Anything's possible. Um, but no one's even willing to take that on for a conditional seventh or whatever. And even if they were willing to take it on for a conditional seventh, like you might as well just cut them if you're only going to get marginal trade value just to do them a solid, right? Like do, do them a solid, cut them, let them go and pick his new team. Cause everyone's going to want to restructure that deal. There was no way you're going to get anything as part of that, of that deal. Now they could have cut them earlier, rather than exhausting this entire thing, that's when you're definitely not doing the guy a solid is by cutting him at this part in the cycle. After we've gone through free agency, after we've gone through the draft, after we've gone through even guys like Odell Beckham getting signed. I mean, who knows? Like he could have been in Baltimore this season if he would have gotten cut earlier this year. So I could see Hopkins would definitely not be, you know, super happy about that. Um, But he got paid. He got his, you know, almost $17, $18 million a year for the last few seasons, even though he was not super productive with Arizona. He had one good year with Arizona. The last two years played a total of 19 games, a total of 1,300 yards, and a total of 11 touchdowns. So kind of like one really good year's worth of production over the last two seasons. So kind of two really good years worth of production out of three years on the team, which is okay. Um, but he was one of the highest paid guys in the NFL when they restructured that contract and he went over to Arizona. So let's talk first about Cardinals, maybe what's going to end up happening there. Um, the depth chart, I wouldn't say it was full or it was substantial, but you know they did trade for Marquise Brown last year. And remember, Hopkins was injured to start the season last year. I'm not injured, sorry, suspended to start the season last year. They brought in Marquise Brown, and I don't know if Marquise Brown like lit it up necessarily with his efficiency or his play, um, but he was he, he, he got a lot of targets. He got a lot of usage last season. In fact, let me get some game logs here for last season. If you look at what he did last year to start the season, um, he got – here are his target totals – Six week one, then 11, 17, 11, 10, 9, 8, 8, 8, 6, 9, 4. So he didn't get over the 10 mark again after you know the suspension was over. But during that suspension, we have four games with at least 10 targets, one with 17 targets. So I don't know. I mean, Marquise Brown is cool, but he wasn't particularly efficient with those targets. And remember the overall offense for the Cardinals. I think Kyler Murray had the lowest uh, yards per attempt of anyone last season of any quarterback who had at least 
you know, 300 pass attempts last season. So it just wasn't an efficient offense, and he wasn't necessarily driving much efficiency there. Again, 140 yards on 17 targets is his best. Was his best, one of his best games there. Uh, the rest of the time did not get over 100 yards. So so we got we got Marquise Brown there. So he'll have a, he'll kind of fall back into probably being their wide receiver one in that offense. Uh, you got Rondale Moore, who has not done a whole lot. Uh, since coming in as a highly drafted uh, pick, second round pick, 49th overall pick. So far in his career, he has 849 yards in total in the two seasons that he's been in the NFL. Um, last year, if you look at some of the recent games that he had for game log, um, yeah, he started to do a little something. I guess just, yeah, he started to do a little something. Um, if you look at him, he had 13 targets in mid-November, had some injury issues after that, but still 94 yards. He had 92 yards in another game. So he's never been, an, an, again, a guy who's really going to produce that much in terms of efficiency. And then they drafted Michael Wilson. And in the third round this year, I don't know. Is he going to be the starter? Potentially they have him there. They also got Greg Dorch. They got Zach Pascal. I don't. I, I think Zach Pascal's is okay. Um, Auden Tate. <laughs> way down there so yeah it's looking a little rough you got Zach Ertz and Trey McBride maybe they'll run some some 12 personnel even though they were kind of seen at least underneath Kingsbury RIP Kingsbury was as being the team that might even try to run some 10 personnel which never really happened in the NFL um I mean it's just a rebuild here for the Cardinals they got their pick they got the Texans pick it's not a surprise that Hopkins is gone. The question was just whether or not they're going to be able to get any compensation for him. And I think this was where it was heading the entire time. And smart observers kind of knew this is where it was heading the entire time because no one would actually want that contract. Um, other OTA news that we can talk about. Yeah, let me see. Um I thought it was a little bit, this is going to be more like thematic of what to believe, what not to believe. I did some of this at the end of the off season going into last season where you can just ignore 99% of what you're hearing in, in the OTAs. What you want to pay attention to is injury news, like legitimate injury news. There's a lot of, you know, snarky stuff about Jimmy Garoppolo having foot surgery and not being ready and like, Oh, they're dead you know, injury prone, Jimmy, maybe, maybe he will be injury prone, Jimmy, but it sounds like this is something they've known about for a while. Uh, Jimmy doesn't want to show up to these off season activities anyway. So I'd fade that a little bit, as long as they're going to be ready for week one, we are getting some news about, you know, Brees Hall potentially being back other guys that we're going to want to pay attention to whether they'll be back for week one or not. Tony Pollard looks like he's in line to be back for week one for all the fantasy football heads who want to be paying attention to that sort of stuff. So I think we pay attention to that, but at this point in time, like nothing has really changed, you know, even though we're getting this news about Jimmy Garoppolo and whether his readiness or not, he had surgery months ago. So like nothing has changed as far as, as far as that's concerned. Um, depth charts, that's something to eventually pay attention to, I would say. Uh, but some, something we certainly do not want to pay attention to. And I'm going to highlight, <laughs> I'm going to call out, call out's a little strong, but I'm going to highlight one reporter here for like the epitome of do not pay attention to what they are saying. And that is uh, Diana Rossini over at uh, ESPN and her work with the Jets. Um, for those watching YouTube, I'm going to bring up 
some of my screen here for what for what she's had to say. Uh, we're going to go first. Actually, let's go first to the the video report that she did, and then get into some of the tweets. And again, it's like this was something that was legitimately. I think this is on Get Up, so the main ESPN, one of the main ESPN morning programs, this is something that's being talked about. And can't imagine something that's actually less insightful when it comes to what we need to be. Uh, paying attention to here with Aaron Rodgers, but I'll go ahead and give it to you guys. So here's uh, here's the what up, uh, the what up, the get up segment uh, that Rossini had for for ESPN. What has Aaron Rodgers done inside this building? He has championed the messaging from head coach Robert Sala and GM Joe Douglas. They are all on the same page. And, and here's what you always hear about from these great quarterbacks. They're not just players; they're coaches. And you shouldn't overlook the power of that, right? Yeah. So many coaches that I talk to in this league want to have their players take the accountability. I think of Teddy Bruschi all the time talking about the Patriots right. back then when they were winning all those championships. Bill didn't have to press those guys to be leaders. The players held each other accountable. And now there's a player in this Jets facility that is holding the players accountable around them. We're four weeks in. Right. It's happening already. Right. And he- okay. <laughs> That's- Aaron Rodgers is holding the Jets accountable, people. Uh, I mean, Jesus Christ, you, you gave up the equivalent of an early first-round pick, and you're paying the dude $60 million a year. I, I hope he's doing something out there. Um, this is kind of like the, the Allen Robinson reporting about how, how amazed they were at how great Allen Robinson was when it's like, yeah, dude, you, you gave him a huge contract. I hope he's good. Um, this is stuff you can totally and completely fade. I mean, Jesus, if bad news was coming out of the Jets camp like five minutes into Aaron Rodgers being there, um, it would be a total, complete disaster. And I have to say on this, maybe I'm being too cynical, but you really like can't help but think when you're hearing stuff like this that eh, it's not like a quid pro quo type of situation, but it's a... I'm going to report out all of this stuff that you're telling me, all this positive stuff. And, you know, maybe I'll work my way up. Maybe, maybe I want to work my way up the, the, the totem pole of uh, like when you send out those text messages out to all the insiders on the news of the day, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll make my way a little bit higher up that hierarchy. Um, Rossini's done, obviously has done, I don't know if she's carried any water for them, but she's she's obviously worked her way in pretty well with the Titans because she seems to be one of the first people that gets information from the Titans. Maybe she's trying to work her way uh, up the Jets, uh, up the Jets. Because if you look at like the whole the whole string of events here, it was, um, you know, she's she's in New Jersey for the first day of open practice. And then this is this is some other tweets here. Spoke to multiple Jets players and coaches about the impact of Aaron Rodgers. These are, these are different things that, that were the impact. The standard has been raised. The quote-unquote little details are significant to Rodgers. He gives a fuck about the little details. Uh, number three, everyone is being held accountable in meetings and on the field. Rodgers, taking names, okay? He's holding everyone accountable. He has a, has a lot to say in caps. He has a lot to say. He's never shutting up about... Um, <laughs> about his ayahuasca uh, silent retreats he's all in capitals he 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 gives a fuck people um and trust is building trust is building literally the first day (laughs) we're talking about trust building it's literally day one it's not even day one 
I know Jets fans are probably happy about this. It's fun to also see the Packers fans get upset about about this sort of stuff. But man, like like we're spending our time talking about this in the offseason. Can't imagine anything that's more worthless. So fade all that stuff, guys. Um, let's not let's not uh, worry worry too much about what we're hearing about Rodgers and others during um, this offseason. It's going to be a long offseason. We got to pace ourselves. Let's pace ourselves a little bit for what we're going to end up hearing. Okay, I don't have a ton else about NFL, but I got some other stuff that I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about this Celtics Heat series for a reason. I think it's very instructive in how we have to view variance, projections, uh, updating our priors, things, things, things of that nature. Actually, you know what? I was going to talk about Brandon McManus being signed as a kicker because I like this move, but the the long story short is there. Um, kicker kicks a lot of long kicks, whether at home or not, has a long track history, gets a big contract, has a down year, gets cut, boom. Those are the guys you want to swoop in on. For, for, forget the kickers who've done well in college. Forget the guy who has like one or two good years as your kicker and then you sign him to a big contract. This is when you want to swoop. So I, I like this move here. Despite the fact that their current kicker, Riley Patterson, had done okay, but he never even made a kick longer than 53 yards. Um, so like McManus is booming 60 yarders. Uh, he's not making a lot of them, but he's at least attempting them. So that shows you that he that he has the leg for them. Okay, I want to talk the Celtics heat. And the reason I want to talk about this is it's been – crazy the narratives around around this different this this story here um actually let me go back to i don't know if i have it here uh i gotta get this espn tweet that got completely roasted i'm not sure if i have it but it was basically according to fpi not fbi that's the football power index according to i don't know what they call it bpi that oh here it is here it is i'll bring it up actually so everyone can see it this is this is the continuing war of ESPN against their analytical uh, department, which they which they also they 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 declared war on them when they said that Will Levis had like a zero percent chance of falling into the second round after it ended up happening. So the the tweet, and this is before the series started, was the Miami Heat have a three percent chance of reaching the NBA Finals, aka winning the series. According to ESPN analytics, now <laughs> the social media people like they know that this is going to get dunked on a million times. Let's look at the numbers actually for this one. But what are the numbers on this tweet? 7,000 quote tweets. Um, 3,000 retweets. I'm actually surprised. It's not. Um, oh, here we go. Jeff Benson. Shout out to Jeff Benson over at uh, Circus Sports. He's one of the first people to reply to this. Uh, one of the sharpest books out there. He says, I, for one, hope ESPN gets into the sports betting business and soon. With their models, I can't foresee anything going wrong. Uh, so anyway, so everyone dunked on this because obviously we all knew, even the people who put this together, I don't think anyone actually believed. Like if you, if you interviewed every single person in the ESPN analytics department, I'm sure no one believed that they had, that the, that the Celtics had a 97% chance of winning this series. No way. Now, what was the, the chances going into the series? Well, at some sports books out there, the... Um, the the number going into it it looks like let me get it up here exactly it looks like it was around 500 to 5 minus 500 to minus 550 for the the Celtics now of course so if you look at this let's just do let's just do the minus 500 
So that would have been about an 83% chance. So it's still, that's pretty damn high. Uh, I see 550 a couple of places. So that's an 84.2% chance. So let's just say even at, you know, 80-20 to be conservative, that's high. You know, 80-20 in the conference finals is a huge mismatch. It's not 97-3, but it's a big, 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 big mismatch. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I'm not saying this before when it was 03, but there was a lot to say about this series to say that looking at base rates and the fact that there's been 149, I think it was, series that have started 3-0 and, and no team has ever come back in NBA history. It's happened in other sports, but NBA doesn't have nearly the variance that it does in other sports. There was a lot aligning for this series right now. And this series, just so people know, uh, the Celtics are plus 115 to win now after winning the last two games. So they're almost a coin flip, not quite, a a little bit less than a coin flip. They're almost a coin flip now to win the last, to win two games because they're seen as being that much better than the Heat, one one away and one at home. Um, This really set up as the best chance maybe in NBA history for a comeback, for an 03 comeback. For for a few different reasons. Number one, um, the 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 state of the mismatch. I looked back in NBA history for odds that I could find it going back into the late 80s. And there have only been 10 series. There's only been 10 series where a team was was minus 550 or greater. So in other words, about an 84-ish percent probability according to that line. There's only been about so only been 10 series where that were in the semifinals that that's been the case that, that that a team was that big of a favorite going into it. Uh two out of the 10 that team won 4-0. Another two times out of the 10 they won 4-1. Um four times out of 10 the team won 4-2 and twice it actually ended up going to a seventh game. But still all these different circumstances um, one of those times it went to a seventh game, it was actually a Michael Jordan year against Chuck Person and the Indiana Pacers. But in all of these cases, the team that was favored won the series. So 10 and 0 for teams that have been favored by that much winning the series in, in the in the conference finals. So we have like a huge favorite. This is this is unprecedented at this stage of knowing as much as we know about these teams for a team to be down that much. So, you know, the 149 and 0, not really a great sample to judge this on. That's number one. Number two, uh, because of the importance of the three-pointer in the NBA, the three-pointer adds variance to the game. Now, there are more possessions per game. Teams are playing faster, which lowers variance. Uh, All else being equal, the more possessions you have, the more likely the better team is going to win. Um because your like efficiency on a per possession basis is more likely to regress to what your true efficiency is. Um, so that's true, but it's more than offset by the fact that so many three pointers uh, are going up nowadays. And the three pointers, it, it really becomes the, the whole, the whole adage of it being a make or miss league is very, very, very true. Um, the other day, uh, Haralla Bob, Bob Vulgaris, do I have him on here? Let me bring up. Uh, let me bring up his chart. I don't know if I know how to spell his name. 
He spelled Bob Vulgaris. But anyway, he brought up a really great um, illustration of like the expected points and the actual points that have been scored off of three pointers for these different teams so far in this series. Um, let me, okay. Oh, he actually calls it make or miss league. Let, let me bring it up here for anyone. Again, YouTubers, if you're watching here. So as Bob says here, world, you know, famous uh, sports better here. So he has the expected points per shot versus the over expected. So over expected points per shots over actual points per shot. So if you look at what happened in this series, Boston, they had like an expectation of 1.2 points per shot based upon their shot mix, right? You're going to you're going to increase that by getting more three-pointers obviously in your shot that have a higher expected point total, um a lower field goal percentage but a higher expected point total. Miami was the lowest and really really low, but yet Miami was the highest on their actual points that they were scoring. Um and Boston was near the lowest. The, the the Lakers were a bit lower looking at the four teams that are in the semifinals. So you were expecting around 1.12 points per shot for the, for the Heat. You're expecting more like 1.2, so significantly more. And you, it basically got flipped. Your expectations and the results were being flipped by the, for these two teams over – the course of this series so far, it's just a make or miss league. Now, maybe you could point out actual defenses, defensive difference. Miami is obviously a lot better than their eighth seed, all that sort of stuff. But when people were convincing themselves that there was something wrong with the naive models that were coming into play, uh, probably typified more than anything else by a tweet from Bomani Jones, who I like, I like Bomani Jones, but he's, he's getting roasted for this a little bit where he said after now, Maris, remember that the, the heats were, I mean, the heat, the the Celtics were big favorites in, in games one and two in Boston. They were still, I believe a four point favorite in Miami for game three, despite losing the first two games. And then after that, for game four, the Heat were only a one-point favorite in his mind. Only a one-point favorite. So, he's, so what he said was the Heat are still only a one-point favorite. Vegas's models just cannot conceptualize what the Celtics have done this series. So the basic gist was the models just can't figure this out. I know the models tell you X, but they're going to say, hey, we have a lo- much larger sample size of Boston being a much better team but the models can't bring into play what we're seeing with our eyes. Kind of like the models can't tell you whether or not fourth down is the right thing to do here because I see with my eyes that my left guard is getting his butt kicked or whatever you want to say about a particular play. And first of all, there's a misconception of the fact that this is like a Vegas model thing. Sure, they might model out an opening line, but if they have a lot of smart, sharp action coming in on another side, you better believe they're moving off of it. So this is like a little bit more of a wisdom of crowds and smart crowds, giving a lot more credit to the smarter crowds than not, which came up with this line. And number two is, if anything, that number was probably wrong towards the heat. We were probably overvaluing the markets and even smart betters and everyone was probably overvaluing what the heat had done so far because of this make or miss league phenomenon that we had seen the first few games. 
The Celtics were not making their shots and they were turning the ball over too often. That can be something that's sticky, but not for a team that's as good as the Celtics, not for a team that is vastly favored to win this. So it was really setting up from what we had seen this. So many fundamental markers were pointing to the fact that the Celtics were probably at least equal, if not the better team, the first few games, despite losing those all and knowing that they fundamentally were such a better team, that this really set up as one of the greatest chances, maybe the greatest chance in NBA history to have a team come back from being down 3-0. And again, now we're sitting here two games away basically a little bit worse than coin flip odds for the Celtics to be able to do that right now. So I think it's teaching a lot to a lot of different people about number one, don't be overconfident based on regular season results. That's what we learned for the overconfidence about the Celtics going into this. But number two, don't build too much of a story (coughs) around the results of a few games. Don't build too much of a story around whether shots are going in or not as to whether or not that tells you something fundamental about what will happen going forward. Uh, Don't build too much in this, you know, Jimmy Butler narrative where I'm sure he's stepping it up in the playoffs, but let's not expect any sort of super extraordinary effort from one particular player as if other players don't want to play and don't build too much in this. Like the team has quit, you know, like I I, I get, I get um, whiplash every single time where it's like James Harden, he's quitting and then he's having a great game and then he's quitting. He's having a great game. Hey, sometimes the shot goes in. Sometimes they don't. Maybe players can get discouraged when the shots aren't coming in. So maybe they look like they're, they're, they're quitting a bit, but it is discouraging. It is deflating when the shot doesn't go in. And it's very exhilarating when the shot does go in. And sometimes that's really the name of the game and applying this to the NFL. That's why I look a lot about third downs. Converting third downs, some teams can consistently do it better, but if you're converting a ton of third downs and you're not one of those teams that can consistently do it better, I mean, even if you are, if you're vastly outperforming what you should be doing on third down, it's going to have a massive effect on the game, but it's not necessarily going to be stable going forward, and it's not going to help us understand the game better, and it's not for sure going to help us predict what's going to happen in the future any better. And, you know, for the most part, that's what we're trying to do here. Uh, on this podcast and of course on the Substack. All right, let's get to some of the Q&A here. Um do 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 first one here. Okay, here we go. Right from the top. Man from BC, British Columbia. I assume that's what it is or else you're before Christ. I don't know. <laughs> Let me know which one that is. Um Q&A. How big of a sample in terms of games do you need to have confidence that a QB is good? How different is this for other positions? Well, it's um if we're talking about games it's versus other positions ah it's a tough one i would say for defensive players in particular it's really hard to figure things out um coverage players it's extremely hard to figure things out um wide receivers it's kind of in the middle Anyone who is a edge rusher or a tackle, you can probably get a decent idea, maybe about equal to, to there's probably less dependence on other players there. So maybe even a better idea than you can for quarterbacks for those types of players. But I think the problem is we're talking a lot in, when the, when, in this particular question about learning curves for these different 
players. And, you know, as usual, PFF Timo, PFF underscore Moo, has done research on learning curves for a lot of these different positions. So I think the problem isn't necessarily like how big of a sample do you need? It's that every sample for a player, for the most part, I guess there can be some players who come in who don't play as rookies at all, but most of them are playing as rookies and there's just a big discount on performance. Running backs, not as much. Uh, Wide receivers, a decent amount. And then big discounts on guys when we talk about coverage players not necessarily getting up to play when we talk about tackles and edge rushers take a little bit longer to develop and then quarterbacks take a take a little bit longer to develop especially rookie year now second year should really be pretty close to what you're expecting from them and i do think you can look at rookie year performance for a quarterback so a single year i do think you can get a lot out of um but it's not like a binary thing that you have confidence or you don't have confidence. I think you should be updating probably more quickly than people think when it comes to quarterback. Uh, I remember a discussion I had on the PFF forecast podcast with George Jahuri and at that time, Eric Eager. And this was maybe, I don't know, six, seven, eight weeks into the 2020 NFL season. So the draft year of Herbert to a, and Joe Burrow. And they were a little surprised that at that point already, I was willing to say, I thought Herbert was better than Tua. I mean, I know they were drafted right next to each other, but there was a very, very negative sentiment on Herbert out there. And maybe I didn't share that negativity that a lot of people had, uh, including a lot of people at PFF, but I was already willing to look at what they did in the NFL and say, yeah, Herbert's been so good. I know Tua, I'm not sure if he he really even played that much at that point. Um, but I was like, you know, Herbert's, Herbert's legit. We have to update already based upon this. Um, confidence, though, I don't know if I had confidence on that, but always update. And it does matter what these guys do in uh, the rookie years. Let's see here. Um, adding to that, does it make sense for the cars to replace Murray with Caleb Williams next year? Yeah, it probably does. But let's look at Murray's contract here. It's a it's a it's it's not good. Um, but yeah, no, I think you definitely would have to think about that. I mean, the problem with Murray is he's had some good passing production, but a lot of like when he was really playing a little bit in this MVP type of conversation mold, he, he was running the ball extremely well. So this, this ACL tear is going to be an issue for that. So if you look at Murray's contract, 2024, um, yeah, it's, it's rough. It's rough because so he's a, he has a option bonus due. So all of his salary, 35.3 million of his $37 million salary for next season is guaranteed already. Then his 2025 salary and roster bonus. So that is about $30 million becomes guaranteed on March 22nd of 2024. So, there's really no way to get out of paying him $37 million next year and then paying him an additional $30 million the year after that. But maybe, maybe they could cut him after that. They could say, we'll play you for the 2024 season. We'll have that be the rookie season for Williams. We'll have to cut you a check for $30 million. That's a lot. Um, After that, we'll take an additional... Um, I don't know, $20 million in dead cap. No, 
thirty something million dollars in dead cap. So yeah, it's rough. The rough thing is they're gonna have to they have to cut them this check, but they can maybe get it out of it or keep them at that point. I think they should at least explore it. And if they can transfer him, because you know again these guarantees come into play. If you can trade him, then you can toss off those those guarantees. Hopefully, if if Murray played well enough, you could do that. I think that would be the the move. Let him play. You know, at the end of this season, obviously, if they did get Williams, draft Williams, let him play the first half of the season, trade him. You'll still, you'll, you know, you'll have a dead cap of like thirty-five million or something like that. But if you can get those guarantees to someone else, maybe with a slight restructuring, then I would go ahead and do so. All right, one man's odyssey Q and A. Can how can you extend smart drafting concepts to fantasy dynasty? Seems like there are fewer impactful players versus in real life football, so accumulating high picks is better. Yeah, I think that's true. the The whole thing about it, the whole thing to remember when we're talking about like dynasty football or something where there's not the cost component when it comes to these picks is that's a huge difference. I mean, the reason you don't want a lot of early picks in football football outside of getting a quarterback is that they cost a lot. The price is a lot higher, not just the price to trade for them, but the actual NFL dollars and currency that you have for the salary cap is a lot higher. So and the fact you have such a long timeline on these players for dynasty. Yeah. I think you probably want to go up um, as early as possible. And of course, you know, receivers, all that sort of stuff. I think a smart drafting concept that we're going to talk about if we're talking about dynasty football is this is, this is an interesting question. Cause I, I listened to some discussions on, um, establish the run podcast. Everyone should be listening to that with Evan Silva and Adam Levitan. And, and funny, they were talking about Ramondre Stevenson as part of this. So I think there's a couple different ways to play it, depending upon how active you want to be in trading. I'm not against drafting running backs, but I also would be willing to flip them out after like one good season. Now they're talking about whether you should trade Ramondre Stevenson right now because of his value. I think I'd still wait and try to get one monster season out of him. He had a pretty good season last year because I just don't think his value would go down after a monster season. And you get that monster season on your roster where let's face it, like you need production. You can't just be constantly trading away players for future production. And I don't think he'll be discounted based upon that. So it's it's running backs are not bad. Once you get one year of production, flip them out. Otherwise, of course, the receivers are going to have a longer tailwind in here. Um, okay. Austin Foos. I hope that's Foos. Um, F-O-O-S. Hey, I'm wondering if applying surplus value to each pick based on where they are picked in the draft includes too much hindsight bias. When they're taking draft pick value variants, yeah, I mean it's 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 I don't know if it's hindsight bias, but it's overfitting. So it's overfitting to pass results to what's going to end up happening in the future. I do think there should be more smoothing involved in that. I try to do that a little bit, but honestly, I could do a better job. But a lot of my stuff is more like a thought exercise before we're going to apply it and say this is exactly what I'd be doing in an NFL draft room. I definitely be applying a little bit more. Um, of that sort of, of that sort of way. Um, oh, here we go. So Ziegler again, my man with all the information here, he says there's a nice way out of Murray's contract. If you post June one, cut him or can trade him before the March 22nd date. I assume we're talking about yeah, next year in 24. Yeah. He says in 24. Yeah. I think that's the way to go, but you have to be able to get rid of that contract. You have to, someone has to take on those guarantees. That's the problem is he has that rolling guarantee structure where everything keeps on moving further and further into the future there. All right, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, I, I'm torn on this Celtics series. I kind of want to see them win because I want to see everyone who believes that 
you know, Vegas and, and models are a bunch of idiots and the heat's the best. The heat's we should have known the heat had, you know, playoff grit and all that stuff. I like to see all those people go down in flames, but at the same time, don't necessarily want to see Boston fans celebrating um, as someone who grew up a Lakers fan. And I'm from Southern California. You always have to state that when you're a Lakers fan, you have to tell people you're from Southern California or else they think you're a Lakers Cowboys Yankees fan who lives out somewhere who just like becomes fans of all the big teams. Um, so because of that, not really hoping for the Celtics to do well this year, but maybe if they go on and they get crushed by the nuggets, that could also be good. Uh, but anyway, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you're a fan, you've been listening until this point, try to get this every week. I do these two or 3 PM. Hopefully I'll try to do 2 PM from now on, on Fridays. We'll talk here and do the Q and a and wrap up for the week. I'm going to talk to Ryan O'Hanlon next week, more soccer talk, but I'm going to relate a lot of it to NFL concepts there. And of course, you know, visit the Substack, unexpectedpoints.substack.com to get all of my research there. Uh, until next week, you know, everyone have a great weekend, great long weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Enjoy your families. Enjoy, uh, you know, some some warm weather, hopefully for people like myself. I got some pools opening up here that I may dip my toes into and start to enjoy uh, the coming summer. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.